Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy. I'm Robert Talese. I'm Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University, and I co-host the program with Carrie Figger. Carrie is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. My guest today is David Rondeau. David is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of Nevada, Reno. He is a social and political philosopher whose work is centrally engaged with the idiom of American pragmatism. David's new book is titled Pragmatist Egalitarianism, and it's published by Oxford University Press. Pragmatism is a long-standing philosophical idiom that advocates public-facing philosophy, that is, philosophy which abandons the long tradition of academic puzzles and addresses itself to the social and political problems of our day. This commitment is perhaps most firmly manifest in the case of John Dewey. Unsurprisingly, Dewey wrote extensively in social and political philosophy, focusing in particular on developing a conception of participatory democracy. Now, given Dewey's strong commitment to democracy, it's clear that Dewey is some kind of egalitarian. But what's also surprising is that Dewey wrote little that's explicitly about justice. Now, in his book, David Rondell seeks to make explicit pragmatism's contribution to egalitarian political philosophy. Drawing specifically on Dewey, James, and Richard Rorty, Rondell argues for a pluralist approach to egalitarianism, one that resolves tensions among competing versions of egalitarianism. As usual, there's a lot to talk about, but also as usual, we'll begin with our guest. Hello, David. Hello, Bob. How are you today? I'm very well. How about, how about you? Oh, doing great. Um, why don't you start us off, as we normally do start off, by telling us a little bit about yourself. I would love to. Um, and, and thank you, Bob, for um, having me uh, on the program here. It's my pleasure. Um, so, yes, uh, you know, as you mentioned in your um, brief uh, introductory remarks, uh, I'm an assistant professor uh, in philosophy at the University of Nevada, which is in, uh, in Reno. Um, as you said as well, I work mainly in um, political philosophy uh, and legal philosophy. Uh, and I also have uh, strong research interests in uh, the American pragmatist pragmatist tradition, um, particularly uh, in the work of uh, William James, John Dewey, uh, and Richard Rorty. So, okay, uh, a bit uh, a bit about me. I'm uh, I'm 40 years old. Um, I was born and raised in um, Toronto, Canada. Um, you know, my path into philosophy, I it it isn't a particularly interesting story. I I don't think. Um, Basically, philosophy 101 was the was the course that I enjoyed the most out of the five or six courses that I took in uh, my freshman year uh, in college uh, at the University of Western Ontario in, in London, Ontario. Um, and pretty much on that basis alone, um, I decided to become a philosophy major. Um, to be honest with you, I'm not sure what what it was that captivated me about philosophy. Um, as a teenager, I, I had a sort of dark, brooding uh, temperament. Um, I consumed a lot of music like you know, Nirvana, Nine Inch Nails, and other sort of angsty bands from the early to mid-1990s. Um, but I was also at that time in sort of my young teenage years drawn to um, existentialist ideas, um, particularly in um, the form that they take in, in some novels. Um, so Dostoevsky and um, Albert Camus were um, sort of chief among my favorites um, at that time. So, I, you know, I'm not really sure, but um, I have a feeling that, um, or it's plausible at any rate, that studying philosophy may have somehow, you know, satisfied those same brooding proclivities that I had had a, a, as a teenager. But um, I'm just speculating uh, as to what philosophy may have, may have caught on for me. Um, as for event, as for how I eventually became interested in um, political philosophy um, in particular, I think that um, some of that is explained um, by my parents. So um, 
my parents are both uh, immigrants to Canada. Uh, my mother from uh, the French speaking part of Belgium, uh, a city, uh, she's from a city called Liège, which is in the sort of area of Wallonia, the French part of Belgium. Uh, and my father is um, Israeli. Um, he's the son of uh, German Jews who uh, fled uh, Hitler in the 1930s. And uh, my parents actually met on uh, on an Israeli kibbutz. Um, for your listeners who may not uh, be familiar uh, with an Israeli kibbutz, uh, it's a it's a kind of propertyless socialist farm slash commune. And so, um, yeah, that's where my parents met. Um, and so there was a certain, I guess, leftist orientation um, there from the beginning. Um, I wouldn't characterize my parents as uh, politically radical. Um, but nonetheless, I think a certain kind of uh, leftist politics, um, or social democratic politics is probably more accurate, um, pervaded the household uh, that I grew up in. So there would be regular discussions about political issues around the dinner table uh, in my house growing up. And um, I'm sure that had something to do uh, with uh, that that helped to foster my interest in, um, in political philosophy, I'm, I'm sure. Well, fabulous. Um, can I ask just a quick question out of curiosity before before you continue, if you if you if you, you choose to? Um, so, the do you have any speculations about how the, the 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 angsty brooding temperament was attracted to pragmatism, which is on some readings, I don't think the most accurate ones. I should add, um, is uh, um, very positive about the future. <laughs> You're absolutely right. You know, I think unlike other uh, pragmatists, maybe of, a, of an older generation, what, what really drew me into pragmatism actually was um, uh, Richard Rorty's work. And it's sort of through Rorty that I kind of in reverse uh, discovered uh, person James and Dewey. Um, and Rorty, I know, I think Rorty is kind of angsty. Um, you know, he's, um, the, the, I mean, there's definitely a hope, a hopefulness uh, that runs through his um, runs through his work, uh, without question. But you know, he's uh, very critical. Uh, he had, uh, he's you know telling repeatedly telling his readers you know what what's a waste of time and what's turned out to be a dead end and you know uh, which dualism or controversy is sort of uh, no longer really worth thinking about. So. I think there is some of that temperament in maybe most of all in Rorty, but I, but you're right. I mean, the pragmatists are uh, are a hopeful bunch. Uh, <laughs> it's a, it's a good point. Uh, did you so did you come to pragmatism um, in the course of your graduate study, or was that something that you picked up uh, somewhere before you uh, entered graduate school in philosophy? That's right. So you know, American pragmatism was um, not covered at all, really, in my undergraduate uh, education. I, I recall that in my senior year, I took an, an epistemology seminar, um, at which points uh, pieces from Richard Rorty's 1979 book, uh, Philosophy in the Mirror of Nature, came up. Um, and I got sort of really captivated by what uh, Rorty was doing uh, in that book. Um, and I think sort of the discovery of Rorty is what really propelled me onwards to graduate school. So um I, I went to do a master's degree uh, at Concordia University in Montreal, um, where I was uh, supervised by um, a philosopher named Kai Nielsen, um, who has sort of strong um, uh, affinities with the pragmatist uh, tradition. And um, subsequent to that, I, I did my doctoral work at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, um, where my work was supervised by Barry Allen, who was actually um, a student of Rorty's. Uh, at Princeton um, a number of years um, earlier. So, um, yeah, I guess I got a little taste of Rordian pragmatism in particular at the very sort of tail end of my undergraduate education. And that's what um, maybe spurred me, spurred me onwards. Oh, fabulous. Um, so uh, is it OK to start talking about the book? Would that be a good idea? Absolutely. Yes. Let's <laughs> do it. <laughs> Great. Um, so uh, your book is titled A Pragmatist Egalitarianism. And um, it enters the fray of uh, what many readers, I'm sure, will recognize as uh, a long-standing debate uh, within the very large literature that has uh, accumulated about justice. And more generally, uh, your book is 
uh, entering a, a series of debates um, within a, a particular group of justice theorists, namely the egalitarians. These are the folks who contend that justice requires that something be made to be equal um, or be made equal. Um, and I guess many listeners will know that these debates have their origin in um, uh, the publication of Rawls' The Theory of Justice and other things that were going on in the early 70s. But um, for those who uh, might need a refresher or who aren't familiar, maybe one place to begin is with some of the background uh, that the book um, uh, picks up with. So uh, maybe begin with telling us some very broad uh, uh, descriptions of uh, the background and the debates about egalitarianism that your book is in part trying to navigate. Sure thing. Yes. Um, so, uh, right. E egalitarians um, believe in equality. I think that much is um, uncontroversial. It's probably analytically true. Um, but of course, uh, they disagree um, vociferously with one another about how um, equality, how the ideal of equality is best understood or properly understood. So um, there's, a, I think, a well-known divide in uh, the contemporary philosophical literature on egalitarianism between two sort of large camps uh, of theorists or theories. Um, one of these camps uh, tends to think that um, equality understood properly um, is fundamentally about the equal distribution of something. Um, this camp, of course, disagrees about what that something is, um, but they agree that that's the right way to pose the question about equality's value. So um, I think it was back in 1980, perhaps 1979, um, Amartya Sen, the Nobel Prize winning um, economist, um, he famously posed the question, uh, equality of what, uh, in, in the Tanner lectures that, that he gave in that year. Um, and I think, you know, from there, a fairly lengthy um, and if I'm if I'm speaking candidly, kind of finicky um, debate uh, ensued from there. So uh, philosophers that are sort of contributing to this literature, um, I think in general, are asking something like, you know, um, a, you know, to the extent that we prize equality as a as a dis distributive goal, you know, what is it exactly? Um, what is it exactly that we're prizing? So, um, you know, otherwise put. Uh, how should we distribute goods and resources among people? What is it that um, they should end up equal in? Um, what is the, to put it in G.A. Cohen's language, what is the currency of egalitarian justice? Should we um, distribute resources so that people end up equal in the welfare levels that they're enjoying in their lives or that they end up equal in their opportunity to uh, achieve welfare? Uh, or that they end up equal, perhaps in you know, Rawlsian primary goods or some other metric um, uh, altogether. So you know, this is, I think, uh, what the the so-called equality of what debate um, is all about. Um, and I think you know, at at its root, it's a debate that um, understands the importance of equality in um, fundamentally distributive terms. It's about the equal distribution of something. Um, so on the other side of this dispute, I think, um, are those who, um, who, who see the value of equality in a slightly different way. Um, so um, for this second group, I think what really matters, insofar as equality matters, um, is that people um, stand to one another in relations of equality, right, as, a, as opposed to, say, relations of hierarchy or relations of oppression. So on this kind of view, um, distributive inequality matters, no doubt, or, or certainly may matter. Um, but that's only because that because those kinds of distributive inequalities impede or, or make it hard uh, for people to stand to one another on equal terms um, as equals. So I think what really matters for the second group of egalitarians is not um, equal, the equal distribution of something as such, but rather um, the quality of human relationships, right? And so if, if distributive inequalities matter, that's only because of their bearing on the quality uh, of human relationships. So this divide, I mean, I've just sort of sketched it. I, I think it can be spelled out in, in, in various ways. Um, I think it's probably fairly old uh, as a dispute. Uh, I, I think you're right, incidentally, that, that much of this goes back to the 1970s and the, and the aftermath of John Rawls's uh, theory of justice. Um, but yes, I mean, whatever it's sort of precise provenance, um, 
I think it was actually Elizabeth Anderson's 1999 article, uh, What is the Point of Equality, that really made this a sort of a lively debate among um, contemporary um, political philosophers. Um, so I guess maybe one general thing to say about the debate between these two sort of camps of egalitarians, I mean, I think what they what they have in common, among perhaps among other things, is that they're engaged in a in a search for fundamentality. Right. They're asking uh, the question about, um, you know, insofar as equality is valuable, you know, what is the ideal or conception uh, of equality that fundamentally accounts um, for this value? And I should say. Um, maybe to sort of uh, segue uh, forward here that, you know, one of the one major impetus for the book uh, that, that I wrote um, is that it seemed to me fairly early on that the main question uh, around which the, this debate revolves, which I take to be the question, you know, what is the fundamental, fundamentally important egalitarian ideal? Is it a distributive ideal or is it kind of a relational uh, or democratic ideal? It seemed to me that that was sort of a badly formed question, or maybe the wrong question um, to be asking. Um, so, yeah, it seemed to me that people who cared about equality, egalitarians, um, were being forced to choose between two, uh, I guess, what seemed to me somewhat artificial options. Um, and perhaps I'd mentioned, you know, uh, most of the people that I know um, who care about equality, certainly those who, who aren't philosophers, um, tend to think that um, I mean, if they consider the question at all, that equality, uh, the value of equality can't be boiled down to one fundamental commitment or one fundamental set of principles. The way that uh, this debate between sort of distributive and relational egalitarians um, sometimes, I think, seems to assume. So anyhow, that's, I guess, some of the background about egalitarianism that maybe um, helps set the stage for uh, what I try to do in the book. Yeah, fabulous. Um, that's very helpful. So um, let's get into the book. Uh, one of the um, one of the sort of stage setting moves that you make that I think is particularly helpful and useful uh, is that you sort of um, divide up the various egalitarian views, or we might say that sort of the egalitarian terrain, um, into distinct sort of views about what we might think of sort of like the way to conceptualize equality. Um, no matter what we think the, the currency may be. Um, and you call these, uh, you separate these into two different views with the labels vertical and horizontal. Um, you, you know, tell us a little bit about how that pair of categories um, helps us to start seeing where some of the um, fault lines are in our thinking about equality. Sure, sure. Um yeah, so I, I use these, these sort of broad headings, these labels, um, you know, vertical egalitarianism and horizontal egalitarianism to distinguish between sort of two very broad, um, amorphous sometimes uh, conceptions uh, of equality. So I mean, these these headings, vertical and horizontal, have a lot of content uh, packed into them. Um, but I introduce them, as, as you said, really just to mainly to pick out some or to help pick out some large types within egalitarian theory or the across the egalitarian terrain, I think, as you put it. So, yeah, the goal here is to kind of stick uh, to stick organizational tags on different kinds of theories and um, sort of help us see better uh, some of the prevailing uh, contrasts and um, uh, disputes among um, contemporary um, egalitarians. So, I mean, very roughly, the the, the vertical metaphor uh, is intended to evoke, um, well, the, the vertical relationship uh, between state um, and citizen, um, whereas the horizontal metaphor um, is intended to uh, evoke the kind of social relationship between or among citizens. So, um, you know, whereas, a, whereas the vertical image kind of has us imagining um, an impartial state, right, distributing to each citizen the rights and resources to which they're uh, justly entitled. But the horizontal image, by contrast, has us imagining something perhaps like an idealized town hall meeting or um, maybe a camping trip. Uh, <laughs> it, was the, it was the metaphor that G.A. Cohen uses in his book about socialism. Uh, but at any rate, it has us imagining something like an egalitarian community right, in which people stand to one another in relations of equality. 
So, I mean, clearly, the, I, I introduced the vertical and horizontal uh, distinction to help sort of track the distributive uh, relational distinction that I spoke about uh, a moment ago, um, and also sort of to maybe gather under the same ambit, um, you know, a, a number of similar distinctions, distinctions in the same uh, neighborhood. Uh, for example, uh, like the distinction between redistribution and recognition that was uh, made famous by um, Nancy Fraser. Um, so, I mean, that's one one uh, sort of uh, use of the vertical horizontal labels. But I, I also want to use those labels in a in a wider way uh, in the book to sort of track um, other issues, um, mainly methodological and metaphilosophical issues. I think um, uh, that egalitarian philosophers tend to disagree about. So. Um, as, as I put it forward, the, the distinction also loosely maps onto the dispute between those egalitarians who tend to think that the egalitarian ideal can be made precise, um, can be spelled out with clear and definitive principles versus those on the other side who don't think that's uh, in the offing. Uh, and I also use the distinction to track the, um, the sort of the difference between those who think that um, the egalitarian um, ideal can be realized in sort of a final and whole way versus uh, those who um, tend to see egalitarianism as as an interminable project, something that's sort of forever a work in progress, as it were. Um, now, I mean, you know, a, a lot of this is, I, is, is a bit artificial, I'll grant, um, but I, I do uh, make explicit in the book that these aren't um, advanced as sort of perfect oppositions. Um, in fact, any egalitarian theory that's worth taking seriously will, will almost certainly feature both vertical and horizontal elements. Um, and of course, they'll combine these elements in, uh, in different ways. Um, I, I say in the book, in fact, that uh, vertical and horizontal egalitarianism are um, akin to Max Weber's uh, ideal types. So, you know, they don't really exist uh, out there in the world. Um, but nevertheless, I think they're sort of useful um, categories for you know helping to fix ideas and um, helping us to see, um, I guess, in a in a clearer way, uh, you know, what the egalitarian terrain looks like from you know twenty thousand feet, uh, as it were. Um, so, but yes, I think you know for purposes of the main argument of the book, um, the distinction between vertical and horizontal egalitarianism is, I think, basically coextensive. Um, with the um, distributive versus relational divide among egalitarians that I um, that I spoke about a moment ago, um, but as I said, I did I, you know I, I did want a set of terms that captured other important uh, differences between egalitarian theorists as opposed to just that single um, area of disagreement. Right, and it's good to um, have emphasized in the book and yeah, emphasize here that. Um, you know, in, in lots of actual cases, lots of actual egalitarian theories, uh, the vertical and the horizontal um, categorizations are kind of combined in various ways. So G.A. Cohen is um, a distributive egalitarian, <laughs> but uh, he does he's interested not merely in the relationship between citizens and the basic structure of their society or their state, uh, but rather the, the transactions that are occur that occur between citizens as such. So it looks as if he's a distributive egalitarian with a sort of horizontal orientation. Does that sound like it might be right? I think that's that's quite right. Yes. Yeah, so uh, G.A. Cohen is definitely on the sort of distributive side. I mean, he's a he's a major contributor to that equality of what literature uh, that I spoke about uh, a little while ago. Um, but yes, when it comes to the question about the, the, the site uh, of distributive justice, so the, the question, um, not sort of what are the correct principles, but to whom do they apply or to whom or what do they apply? Um, Cohen does emphasize that there are duties of egalitarian justice that obtain between um, between individuals, um, in addition, of course, to um, those principles applying to the basic structure of society. So that's right. I mean, I think Cohen's work gives us a good example of the of the various ways that the the different uh, elements that comprise these sort of two broad uh, categories, vertical and horizontal, um, can be combined in, in, in various ways. Great. Can I ask one more question about this? It's um, a little bit broader than, than than the material in the book. So I'm just wondering now whether you think um, in cases where we're, we're thinking about theories of justice, both in the domestic case 
and in the cosmopolitan cases, the international cases, global cases, uh, whether a single theorist could have uh, a vertical view of the orientation, as we might call it, of justice in the domestic case, or, or sorry, got that wrong. I wonder if it makes sense to think that maybe a theorist could have a vertical view um, of justice in the global context and a horizontal view in the domestic context, because I imagine that for theories of global justice, a horizontal view is going to be strained in various ways because it's justice among people who are essentially strangers and separated by great distance of geography and other kinds of distance, right? That sounds that sounds right to me. Um, I mean, I think I think the possibility that you just sketched uh, certainly exists in conceptual space. <laughs> I, I, but that's not saying a lot. <laughs> I, I, I just can't think of a theorist uh, or a philosopher off the top of my head who endorses something like that. But it's cert- I guess it would certainly be possible. Is there someone you had in mind that? No, I just as you were describing it, I was just thinking like, well, you know, some people, some theorists think that um, it's a virtue of a conception of egalitarian justice that it gives a unified account in the domestic and the global contexts. Others think that uh, sort of more sort of Rawls and people who follow him very closely, I guess, think that justice in the sense that justice is fairness is supposed to be tracking can't be a global thing. It can only be a domestic thing because it's tied to the basic structure of a particular society. And so maybe they think justice is not the right evaluative term to talk about global distributive questions. Um, but, I, you know, it's just it's a it, I, it, there's a metaphilosophical question there about whether we want a unified account of the domestic and the global sense or if we could, as your categories might suggest we could think of justice vertically for global justice purposes and think of justice horizontally for domestic cases. Yeah, no, I think it's it's, it's, it's certainly a possibility. Um, my sense is that most uh, well, I, a large portion of um, global justice theorists tend to um, end up endorsing something closer to sort of uh, sufficientarianism at the global level as opposed to egalitarianism as uh, as such. But I, I mean, I think it's a very interesting sort of proposal um, to, to think about how these questions um, and my categories in particular sort of translate uh, or, or map onto um, debates about global justice um, as opposed to domestic justice. It's actually not really an area that I um, take up in, 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 at all in the book. Um, so it is maybe uh, something to think about going forward, if I could extend extending it um, now. Well, cool. Uh, let's get back to what's in the book. Does <laughs> that sound okay? <laughs> um, so uh, you also sort of, in, in your analysis, after you set out the, these two broad categories of vertical and horizontal as ways of sort of separating out different kinds of approaches to egalitarian justice, um, you also see within egalitarianism three distinct what you call variables. Um, and you give them names, the institutional variable, the personal variable, uh, sometimes also called the individual variable, and the cultural. Um, and you think that equality um, and the egalitarian ideal has what we might think of as three different faces or three different contexts uh, associated with these variables. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how that part of the argument uh, shakes out? Absolutely, yeah. So, um, you know, I so yeah, I identify uh, philosophically speaking with the tradition of uh, of American pragmatism. As I I think that's you know, the case for you as well, uh, Bob. I was saying yes, um, and I think you know part of what I wanted to explore uh, in my book um, is the question, you know, what, what does this debate between distributive and relational egalitarians or vertical and horizontal egalitarians, if you like, um, what does it look like if you know, were it to be pursued from a from a pragmatist point of view? So. Um, the three variables that you just asked about, I think, are sort of connected with that. So um, if it's all right, maybe I'll say something brief about pragmatism to help sort of um, uh, contextualize uh, what I was trying to do. Um, so, OK, uh, pragmatists, as I sort of read them, um, believe, uh, I think, uniformly that that inquiry, thinking, uh, philosophical reflection um, is occasioned by problems, uh, what John Dewey called problematic situations. 
So uh, a problem uh, for these purposes um, is really, I think, just anything that unsettles the normal flow of experience, anything that disrupts the smooth, right, unhabitual flow of things in some way. So, you know, one, I think, useful example of this kind of problem-centric slant, uh, definitive of pragmatism, uh, comes from the uh, pragmatism's founder, um, Charles Sanders Peirce, um, and his uh, repudiation of Cartesian skepticism. So uh, in, a, in the famous 1877 essay, The, the Fixation of Belief, um, Peirce uh, calls uh, Cartesian skeptical doubts uh, make-believe doubts. Um, I think elsewhere in that paper, he calls them paper doubts. Um, real doubt, genuine doubt, on the other hand, uh, Peirce argued, um, is like a kind of irritation, right? It, um, it unsettles us in some way. Um, it um, disrupts the the normal sort of unreflective, smooth state of um, belief. Uh, and of course, as you know, uh, for Peirce, um, inquiry um, is the name of the process by which we try to soothe the irritating state of doubt by regaining the non-irritating and comfortable um, state of belief. Um, so I think Peirce says somewhere um, that genuine doubt, as opposed to make-believe Cartesian doubt, um, is is too distressing a state to pass over us um, unrecognized. Um, and I think, you know, the, the same gen, general thought um, is true uh, for all problems, sort of just more, more generally. When experience, when life is uh, flowing smoothly, uh, we don't really need to think or inquire or uh, theorize. Uh, but when something happens to make experience flow less smoothly, when something um, irritates us when a problem uh, impinges, so to speak. Um, that's when thinking and um, inquiry and philosophical reflection um, are are called for. That's when they begin. And so, you know, that's a very loose sketch, I think, of a of a central pragmatist um, in insight. But I think taking that kind of problem centric slant, um, definitive of pragmatism, seriously, um, it, I think I think that has some important implications for thinking about equality uh, in particular and perhaps also for political theory um, more broadly. So uh, as I see things, um, putting problems first, so to speak, um, seems to me uh, to go hand in hand with some species of um, political realism. So on this kind of view, uh, egalitarian philosophers um, need to be attentive to historical, sociological, um, and political facts. Um, uh, I think a corollary is that, um, you know, we don't learn much about equality just from disinterested contemplation or just from, you know, a priori armchair uh, theorizing um, on this kind of political realist view that I think sort of follows from uh, pragmatism. Um, we need to sort of attend to and take seriously um, the messy world of real politics. Um, so I think in general, this kind of approach will be I'm suspicious about the project of trying to formulate sort of timeless principles in ideal theory, um, you know, principles from which everything else can kind of be deduced and, and so on. Uh, a related point, or um, maybe just another way to make the same point, um, is that this kind of approach, uh, this sort of pragmatist, problem-centric, uh, um, politically real realist approach, um, will again take seriously or it, it'll assign a certain precedence to um, struggles for equality in the real world, movements and struggles uh, in the real world. So, again, I think this is part of the same uh, general distrust of a priori theorizing um, that I think runs through the pragmatist tradition. Um, and, you know, the upshot is that we can't figure out, you know, what equality requires or how best to conceive of equality um, just by speculating uh, from the philosopher's armchair. We, we need to attend to the real world. Uh, we need to take seriously the claims uh, and complaints that are made by real people who are um, actually struggling for equality. Um, and I, I guess a corollary uh, to that, we need to be mindful of history and social science um, and to have um, all of that information play some important guiding role um, in our thinking about equality. So, okay, um, from that a little sort of sketch of a, of a pragmatist problem-centric approach uh, in, in political theory. Um, but I, you know, I made the argument in the book that from the point of view of that approach, 
um, the debate between distributive and relational egalitarians or vertical and horizontal egalitarians, if you like, um, shows itself to be sort of ill-formed or um, minimally sort of unhelpful, I think. Um, so it's not that the distinction is is sort of wrong or um, incorrect as far as it goes. Um, I think the, the the more accurate complaint is that it's it's incomplete. So um, there's a lot about equality and inequality in the real world that escapes the net of a vertical horizontal analysis. So a, a quick illustration. Um, I mean, consider how incompletely and poorly um, the idea of what feminists call patriarchy right, might be handled by a distributive or relational or vertical horizontal analysis. So, you know, patriarchy, um, I think no one, uh, undoubtedly it resides in the institutions of a society, um, often in ways that are sort of covert and, and hard to spot. Uh, but I think it also lives in, in everyday habits and practices um, and private feelings uh, of individuals who themselves are sort of shaped by the institutions they live under and who in turn help to shape um, and sometimes reinforce those very institutions. Uh, patriarchal norms, though, it's, it's, it's also true to say, um, also inhabit a, a space of uh, cultural meanings, um, which is to say that sort of patriarchal thoughts and ideas are kind of culturally in the air, um, so to speak, um, in a way that's irreducible, I argue, to either uh, institutions um, or individuals. So, I mean, that's a very quick and crude um, illustration, but if it's sort of even remotely on the mark, I think what it reveals is that the vertical horizontal division um, is too sort of crude and rough, um, not granular enough to capture uh, all of the ways in which we're disposed to care about equality. So, um, what we need, uh, I, I argue, is a kind of a richer vocabulary to describe what's going on in cases like these. And so, you know, the main argument of the book really is um, a kind of reconceptualization or a, a redescription of egalitarian thinking in terms of three variables uh, that you asked about at the outset here. Uh, the institutional, the, the, the personal or individualist variable um, and the cultural um, variable. So. Um, in other words, you know, rather than trying to settle the debate between relational and distributive egalitarians um, on, on its own terms, what I'm suggesting is that we sort of more or less change the topic, that we sort of redescribe the situation um, and introduce some new categories and terms. So uh, very briefly, the, the, the three variables, um, uh, the institutional variable um, has to do with the significance for egalitarianism of um, social institutions, laws. Um, economic arrangements. Um, the uh, personal or individualist variable um, concerns um, the significance uh, for egalitarianism of uh, private individuals, private beliefs, um, biases, um, individual behavior and choices. Um, and finally, the cultural variable has to do with um, the importance of culture, language, um, social meaning, stigma. Uh, and, and so on um, for the sort of the significance of egalitarianism as well. So, um, you know, I, these three variables, as uh, as I intend them, are both descriptive and, and prescriptive. So I think, you know, when we think about real world struggles for equality, um, almost invariably they involve um, some mixture of, right, the institutional, the individual and the cultural. So I think they describe some degree of accuracy, at least, um, what egalitarian struggles are actually like. Um, but I also put them forward uh, in the spirit of what uh, Sally Haslanger has called uh, an ameliorative project, which is to say that they prescribe not only how equality sort of is usually thought about or conceptualized, but how it would be best uh, thought about and conceptualized. Um, and so a sort of a major move in the argument is that, um, you know, not no one of the three variables um, can be reduced or subsumed by any of the others. Um, and, and I also make the case that the, the variables are um, typically reinforcing and um, triangulated. Um, and by triangulated, I mean that in sort of in the context of trying to understand egalitarian movements um, and ideals, 
um, almost always to invoke one of those variables is simultaneously to invoke um, the other two, even if that um, isn't really explicit. So, yeah, that's what I was thinking uh, in general about these sort of the three variables, the institutional, personal and um, cultural. Fabulous. Um, so you explicate uh, each of these three by looking at um, an exemplar for each. And um, in the book, the three exemplars are three very prominent pragmatists, namely John, John Dewey, William James, and Richard Rorty, um, with Dewey being our guide for the institutional uh, variable, James for the personal variable, and Rorty for the cultural. Um, could you run us through that part of the book? Absolutely, yes. Um, so as you said, I, I do sort of yoke each variable to one of a trio of pragmatists. Um, Dewey is sort of my exemplar of the institutional variable, James uh, of the personal or individualist variable, and um, and Rorty, the, the exemplar of the cultural variable. Um, you know, I, I, it's certainly not my argument in the book that um, Dewey, James, and Rorty are sort of alone in stressing what they do. Um, uh, I think I could have written a different book in which uh, three different thinkers uh, could have served as exemplars of each of the variables. I mean, I might have had a book where, uh, you know, Rawls was kind of the, um, the the institutional person and maybe John Stuart Mill uh, could have been someone who accentuates the, the individualist or personal variable. And maybe someone like Michel Foucault could have uh, st uh, stood in um, as the exemplar of the, the cultural variable. Um, so, yes, other thinkers and um, figures can certainly be fitted into this um, rubric, I think. Um, but it is, I think, nevertheless, a, a curious and interesting fact about American pragmatism that three you know, really prominent and large figures in that tradition um, sort of typify, I think, so well um, these three different variables. So, I mean, one way to maybe um, get a handle on what I was arguing for um, is to sort of note the some of the differences between James, Dewey, and Rorty, um, um, and perhaps in, in, in terms of how they conceive of uh, of the self or the or the individual person. So, um, James, I think um, anyone who has spent some time with James um, will will agree. I think that he is sort of obsessed with the the inward lives of individuals. Um, Dewey. I think has a very different emphasis in, in his uh, work. Um, he's always accentuating and emphasizing the, you know, what he calls the associated individual. So, you know, the individual who's, you know, embedded in social and institutional webs, the institutional who's always um, going outwards into the world, as um, Alan Ryan nicely puts it in his biography of, uh, of Dewey. So, um, yeah, whereas the Dewey individual is kind of always going outward into the world and uh, joining clubs and associating, uh, the Jamesian individual is sort of perpetually retreating back into her private subjectivity. Um, Rorty is interesting here, I think, because, um, you know, in a way, he there's a place in Rorty's thought for both of these emphases. Um, I, you know, sort of would I'd read Rorty, in fact, as kind of you know, one element of his philosophy is, is is trying to find a way to split the difference between James and Dewey um, here. So what Rorty calls um, irony, pri private irony, um, looks fairly Jamesian. It, it enjoys uh, affinities with that sort of Jamesian project of trying to design for oneself a significant self-authored life, um, whereas the sort of the, the liberal uh, solidarity uh, stance that Rorty uh, also defends is, I think, uh, more Deweyan um, in its in its spirit. So, you know, I take uh, Rorty's argument, his famous argument um, in contingency, irony, and solidarity, um, uh, famous argument that uh, about the sort of incommensurability of the private and the public, um, which has drawn a lot of criticism, incidentally. But I take the sort of main point of that argument to be that, you know, ultimately we don't, you know, we're not forced to choose between a a private Jamesian self on the one hand uh, and a sort of public associated uh, Deweyan self on the other, um, you know, properly partitioned, um, so to speak, these so two flanks of our nature um, don't need to get in each other's way. That's sort of how I understand um, what Rorty, I understand Rorty's argument to be. 
But I think, you know, beyond the sort of inner self and the sort of outer associated self, there's also in um, Rorty's work uh, an, a, another important strand of thought, um, which probably comes to us by way of his encounter with um, French postmodernism. And so I'm thinking here of Rorty's emphasis on um, on the production of social meanings, um, on vocabularies um, and you know, economies of vocabularies, uh, and particularly on the ways um, that uh, linguistic description um, determines or uh, right, determines uh, moral and, and, and cultural valence. So, um, yeah, I mean, the emphasis, I think, of all three pragmatists here is, is, is distinct. And it's, um, it's kind of neat, I think, how um, sort of each one of these pragmatists uh, typifies so well um, sort of the, the respective variable that I um, that I link them with. Um, and so, you know, my argument is that um, all of all three variables, institutional, individualist and cultural, um, are essential for a viable egalitarianism. Uh, if um, if we were to uh, sort of take each one on their own, um, they would be incomplete, I think. Um, but perhaps I'll say something very briefly, uh, if there's time, about why I kind of um, um, link each of these pragmatists with the with the variable that um, that I do. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I single out Dewey as an exemplar of the institutional variable. I mean, not not because he thought institutions were sort of supremely important, um, you know, to the exclusion of any, anything else. Um, but rather, I mean, the key thought for Dewey here, uh, and I think the contrast with um, the prevailing sort of Rawlsian liberalism is, is significant. Uh, for Dewey, I mean, questions about the, about the justification of various institutions um, should be undertaken, I think, in, uh, in an experimentalist manner. So uh, on Dewey's view, as I read him, um, institutions are judged not by whether or not they conform to sort of abstract principles of individual liberty or limited government or whether they could be universally affirmed by, you know, denizens behind a veil of ignorance. Uh, but rather, we judge institutions uh, on the Dewey in view um, by their uh, ability or inability um, to sort of reliably bring about certain concrete consequences for individuals and groups. And uh, my argument um, in, in that chapter is that this sort of experimentalist approach um, to institutions lets us think of uh, institutions instrumentally. Right, as, as sets of tools with which to tackle specific problems. Um, and I try to make the argument that Dewey's um, understanding of institutions uh, would, would serve egalitarian philosophers uh, well. Um, um, James, I single out James as an exemplar of the, the personal variable because um, he seems to me to be the best um, spokesman um, for what um, Princeton political theorist George Kateb calls um, democratic individu uh, individuality. Um, and also that this sort of goes hand in hand with a kind of personal ethic of equality, right? Where, um, um, where sort of the focus is on individual habits um, and, and biases um, and, and, and things of that nature. So, you know, James had, I think, strikingly little to say about um, institutions. Uh, for him, um, institutions and laws and so on always took a backseat um, to the importance of the private individual. Um, so, yes, I, I read James as kind of offering us a kind of personal egalitarianism, right, where we're um, as individuals committed to the idea that um, that each person's private individuality counts equally. Right. No one's private life matters more or less um, than anyone else's. Um, and also I find in James sort of uh, an endorsement of the idea that um, each individual should be able to flourish uh, on his or her own terms um, um, and sort of to, a, I guess, a commitment to a set of habits and behaviors that um, that make this possible. Um, I think also central in James's thought uh, is this sort of uh, moral imperative uh, that he puts forward to um, examine ourselves for sort of moral blind spots, as it were, uh, for ways that we might be oblivious to the frustration of others' uh, individuality, or maybe sometimes um, complicit uh, in the frustration of their individuality. Um, and finally, um, I, I, I sort of uh, single out uh, Richard Rorty as an exemplar of the cultural variable, um, in large part due to what he calls um, cultural politics. Um, you'll remember, Bob, that uh, Rorty's final collection of essays, uh, published in 2007, um, 
was it bore the title philosophy as cultural politics. And I think um, increasingly Rorty came to endorse uh, this conception of philosophy as cultural politics. Um, cultural politics uh, for Rorty um, involves um, sort of questions about uh, what what words we should use in order to best pursue our uh, sort of long-term cultural uh, and political hopes. Uh, and I think Rorty's political theory, uh, particularly the you know this em- this emphasis on vocabularies, um, and especially uh, um, the emphasis that he places on the social sort of transformative power of um, the activity of redescribing, I think all of that sort of suggests a way of thinking about equality uh, and inequality um, that that sort of takes uh, seriously, as a lot of uh, egalitarian theory does not, um, the importance of social meaning and culture. Um, so yes, I think, you know, Rorty's pragmatism is, is, is useful, um, for us to sort of think more intelligently about the, the cultural side of egalitarianism, right? The, uh, about the extent to which, um, changes in culture and social meaning are, are necessarily bound up, uh, with, uh, or for the realization of our, um, egalitarian hopes. Um, and as I mentioned, sort of, you know, just briefly before, I mean, a crucial step in the argument here is that we need sort of the contributions of all three pragmatists here uh, and, you know, um, all three variables um, to fill out the picture. So, um, you know, taken just on their own, I think each of these pragmatists would give us a kind of a conception of equality that would be sort of incomplete and one sided. But if you if you put them together, if you t- if you take them as an ensemble uh, I think we get a pragmatist. The result is a pragmatist egalitarianism that's that's better. Um, and by better, I guess I mean sort of descriptively and analytically um, more accurate, um, uh, be- better than the picture we get uh, from a kind of vertical, horizontal or a distributive uh, relational kind of analysis. Great. Um, so the way that you uh, formulate at least that last that last point in the book um is uh, in terms of reconciliation. That is, you, you, at least in the book, you claim that this uh, trio, this ensemble of egalitarian ideals uh, represented uh, by the exemplars that, that we were just talking about, um, not only gives us a better description or a more accurate picture or perhaps a more appropriate set of things to hope for, but um, as you say in the book, it actually helps to reconcile um, some of the divides and uh, fissures, we might say, uh, within the egalitarian literature. Um, can you tell us a little bit uh, about that sort of reconciliationist project? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, mean, I don't know if, if, if reconciliation is necessarily the best word um, to describe. I mean, no, I, it's fair because I, I use that word, um, but, but maybe I'll try to explain sort of what I what I have in mind. I mean, my sense is that uh, that, you know, if we think about equality and inequality sort of in terms of my three variables, um, then the question that motivates the debate between the distributive and the relational egalitarians, right, which is the question sort of, you know, what is the fundamental egalitarian ideal? Um, is it a distributive ideal? Is it a relational ideal? It seems to me that question doesn't really get any obvious traction uh, f- from the point of view of thinking about equality through the three variables that I um, that I described earlier. So, you know, I have I have a fairly lengthy discussion towards the end of the book about about racial inequality uh, in the United States, um, and this is kind of a, a sort of a real world concrete um, example um, or illustration that that is intended to kind of serve a a corroborating role um, of the of the theory or of the of the view that I put forward. So, um, just to sort of sketch that, I mean, I, relying heavily on, on on social social science data, um, I sort of illustrate um, how or you know that in fact um, African Americans fare worse than than other Americans, particularly uh, white Americans, um, in virtually every sort of objective indicator of of human well-being. So in, in health outcomes, um, in terms of income and wealth, education, housing, um, employment, um, crime and, and incarceration, um, and, and, and so on. Um, and so, you know, part of the argument that I make is that, um, you know, coming to grips with racial inequality in the United States um, involves, you know, 
the institutional variable, the individual variable, and the cultural variable, but also, and I think this is a crucial point, the you know sometimes subtle, sometimes hard to spot ways in which those variables kind of work mutually together um, so as to reinforce and deepen um, inequality along racial lines. So if, you know, if someone were to be sort of serious about the, uh, about trying to understand racial inequality in the United States, clearly, you know, they would have to be attentive to um, a whole range of uh, institutional uh, questions, right? They'd have to examine the practices of, uh, you know, institutions like banks, um, the criminal justice system. Um, we'd have to look carefully at sort of public transportation, at tax laws, uh, urban planning and zoning policies, um, electoral politics would, would play a role in the analysis and so on. Um, so clearly there would be a role for the sort of institutional type of um, inquiry. But at the same time, um, it would probably involve um, attentiveness to um, private individual feelings and biases uh, about um, African-American, say, you know, work ethic, um, violence, criminality, personal responsibility. Uh, we'd also have to pay attention um, to sort of nebulous, uh, hard to spot cultural meanings about um, black criminality, um, intelligence, attitude, ambition, and so on and so forth. Um, and then sort of once we've sort of filled out all this analysis, and I think this is the crucial point, I mean, coming to grips with racial inequality, equality in the United States would also involve understanding how the institutional individual and cultural variables in all of their sort of depth and richness um, reinforce and mutually strengthen each other, sometimes in, in, in difficult to spot ways. So, I mean, the, the, the big conclusion uh, from the point of view of the analysis that I put forward is that, um, you know, inequality is never simply a problem um, of institutional design. It's never simply a problem um, that bears on sort of personal choice and bias and behavior. Um, or it's never sort of simply a problem that depends on a kind of cultural revolution um, uh, for its solution or resolution. I mean, whenever, wherever equality or inequality rather exists uh, in the real world, um, it's virtually always sort of simultaneously um, a problem for all three of those domains, for all three of those variables. So, you know, if someone were to pose the question, you know, okay, okay, you know, but what's the fundamental locus of racial inequality in the, in the in the United States, where does this kind of inequality sort of fundamentally at bottom um, reside? You know, does it reside in institutions, in, in private feelings, you know, hearts and minds, uh, or does it sort of live in sort of cultural meanings? I I think the obvious answer, um, an answer that I think everybody basically already knows. Um, of course, what everybody already knows doesn't always shape the way that philosophers discuss things. Um, what, what I think what everybody already knows is that, you know, um, you know racial inequality uh, in the United States resides sort of equally in all three of those uh, variables or, or domains. And um, it, it seems sort of far-fetched um, to sort of declare one of those variables um, causally or sort of normatively or theoretically um, first. Um, so, yeah, you ask uh, about how this sort of picture, this kind of tri-variable um, picture offers a kind of reconciliation um, between distributive and, and relational egalitarianism. As I said, I, I, I'm not sure that reconciliation is, is the right word here, um, but I do think that thinking um, about equality along the, in terms of, along the lines that I suggest perhaps helps us get beyond some of the assumptions and categories that um, undergird the kind of relational distributive egalitarian divide. Um, so one of the things I think that the pragmatist view that I put forward maybe helps helps us see, I think, um, is that the question that the dispute between um, relational and distributive egalitarians, the question on which that dispute turns, right, that question, you know, which ideal is the fundamental one, um, it helps us see that that question, I think, is perhaps badly framed or maybe even unsound, right? The question sort of seems to suppose that, you know, insofar as we are egalitarians, insofar as we prize equality, there must be sort of some fundamental ideal that we're prizing. Um, and I confess, I, I just have, I have trouble seeing why there must be some such fundamental uh, ideal. Um, I don't see the grounds for um, thinking that we need to sort of 
hold that to be true. Um, I don't I don't see why we need to think that egalitarianism has a has a kind of essence. Right. So, you know, speaking just just for myself, I'm, but I'm sure a lot of people would agree with this. Um, I am an egalitarian. I, I believe in equality. I care about equality. Um, that includes my belief in, um, you know, that people should uh, receive a distribution of resources that's just and that that reflects their sort of equal importance uh, as individuals equally, albeit in a different way. I also believe uh, in the value of a society uh, in which, you know, people stand to one another as equals. Um, but, it, you know, the insistence that one of these commitments, one of these sort of conceptions must be fundamental and the other one secondary, um, I mean, that just strikes me as kind of perversely foundationalist, right? Um, sort of the upshot of a way of thinking that um, puts too much stock in, in um, a priori reasoning um, or perhaps takes the idea of a kind of hierarchy of values too seriously. I think if we look at equality in the real world, um, it, it's, it's not clear that sort of one, one of those ideals needs to come out on top as the, as the fundamental one, uh, and the other ideal sort of secondary and subservient, um, to that. So, I mean, in, I think you know, sort of to, to sum up, um, my claim in the book is that, um, you know, uh, understanding equality in terms of the institutional, personal, um, and cultural variables um, lets us uh, make sense, I guess, uh, of different egalitarian movements, different egalitarian ideals um, with a um, with a greater sophistication and richness um, than the sort that's available in a kind of vertical horizontal analysis. Um, I mean, I think it, it lets us see that, you know, some real world struggles for equality um, um, prioritize a more just distribution of rights and resources. Uh, other struggles, I guess, put emphasis on on the promotion of more egalitarian social relationships. Still others, perhaps, um, place in the forefront a kind of nebulous long-term cultural transformation um, at their center. And of course, you know, different real-world movements combine these different aims um, in different ways. But um, you know, the, the result is that I think we 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 can think about equality and inequality with a with a greater richness uh, and sophistication than than we could have uh, if we just sort of theorized equality along the lines of the distributive and relational um, uh, debate. Well, David, that was fabulous. Um, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, we've got. Um, I'm left for just one final question, which I know is um, uh, in some ways a cruel question to ask somebody who's just finished writing a fabulous book. Um, what's your next project? Yes. OK, well, um, yep, I've got a number of you know smaller uh, projects going, a sort of handful of papers uh, on various uh, topics in um, in social and political philosophy um, uh, ongoing um, uh, a project I'm, I'm really excited about right now. Um, is um, I've just signed a, a contract with Cambridge University Press to um, edit uh, a new uh, Cambridge companion uh, to Richard Rorty, um, okay. which is, I think, in, in my view, sort of long overdue. Um, and so I'm, I'm really excited about that project um, and I'm thrilled, yeah, thrilled to be working on that. Uh, another sort of book project, um, still sort of in very early stages uh, of research, um, is uh, a book about um, anxiety and philosophy. Um, and so, you know, very, very roughly, um, I want to um, sort of explore the extent to which um, anxiety, the experience of anxiety kind of provokes reflection on some of philosophy's perennial questions um, about the nature of self, about freedom, uh, about death. Um, but I also want to suggest that a kind of um, that, that anxiety suggests it doesn't only provoke reflection on those questions, it also suggests some answers to them. So. Um, I want to explore the, the the idea that um, anxiety kind of helps to cobble together a, a philosophical worldview, so to speak, um, and to sort of defend that worldview as you know broadly speaking um, correct. So um, so yeah, um, I guess the, the thesis of the book, but as I say, it's still sort of very early stages, is that that anxiety kind of um, yields a, a certain kind of philosophical wisdom. Um, Kierkegaard famously said that anxiety is our best teacher. Uh, he also referred to um, anxious suffering as a, as a school. So I guess what I what, what I'm wanting to do is kind of uh, it, I want to explore the extent to which you know Kierkegaard might be might be right about that. But um, but as I say, this is um, 
still in very early stages of uh, reading and, and research. So um, there's a long way to go on that one. Keep an eye out both both uh, both of those projects, the the Wordy project and the uh, the anxiety book. Both sound very interesting to me. So, David, I want to thank you for your time today. Well, thank you so much for having me on your on your program, Bob. It's been great. Uh, and thank you, listeners, for joining uh, us for our discussion. Remember, we were talking with David Rondell. His book is titled Pragmatist Egalitarianism, and it's just been published by Oxford University Press. Thank you for listening, and bye for now. <laughs>